Welcome to the Behavior Speak podcast. Now, here's your host, Ben Ryman. All right, welcome to another episode of the Behavior Speak podcast. Today, uh, we're back in uh, British Columbia, Canada, where I have been doing a lot of my interviews and I have the great honor of chatting with Dr. Amy Tanner. Uh, Thanks for being on the show today, Amy. Thanks so much for having me. Very excited to be here. Super cool, super cool. Amy uh, has done a lot of things, which she'll she'll be talking about soon enough. And uh, she uh, did her PhD over in uh, Ireland at Queen's University and, and wrote a an amazing paper uh, called uh, Maximizing the Potential for Infants at Risk for Autism Spectrum Disorder Through a Parent-Mediated Verbal Behavior Intervention. And so we're going to be diving into that article a bit soon. That's published in the European Journal of Behavior Analysis. And we'll have the link to that in the show notes. Uh, but we're also, what really kind of drew me to Amy, in addition to just we're on the, the BC ABBA board together and we've got those connections, but was when I kind of happened upon her website and she d- described herself as a pediatric behavior analyst, which I had never heard of before as a term. Uh, and it sort of seemed almost um, unreal to me because everything that I know about autism and, and which isn't a lot, to be honest, um, particularly when it comes to the younger folks is around in terms of early intervention, seems like folks are getting that kind of teaching, not until they're age like two or three. And so the idea that there's actually stuff out there available for folks before that, and that before they're diagnosed is just, well, it's all really confusing to me. So I thought, what what better to do than bring Amy on and have her explain it all. So, but before we kind of get there, maybe Amy, you could just kind of give us a, a little bit of a, your origin story, kind of how you got into the field and kind of what led you to uh, Ireland and eventually to sort of working with the, uh, the super youngins. Yeah, that sounds great. Yeah, so I'm going to go back about 20 years in my journey where I started my undergrad in psychology. I just loved learning all about brain, brain development, how the mind works. I had no idea what I was going to do with an undergrad in psychology, but I was just fascinated by it. So I started at the University of Waterloo and uh, completed my undergrad, loved all my psychology classes um, and took, you know, a really wide breadth of all sorts of different ones. And then I thought business was my calling. And so I had plans on pursuing kind of an MBA after that. Hmm. But um, I had followed a boyfriend to Calgary from Waterloo and got started um, in the summer of 2003 um, with a very small company at the time called Lululemon, where there was only three stores. And so instead of pursuing my MBA, I, um, you know, we talked to about how like the growth of where Lululemon was going and And so I kind of caught that wave at the right time and kind of deferred my MBA and decided to um, stick with the company. So from 2003 to 2008, I helped grow Lululemon from three stores to 110 stores. And we went, you know, public and through different roles working with them. I moved to Miami at the age of 24 and opened all their Florida stores and got some really amazing kind of business experience with, you know, such a rapidly growing company. Um, but after five years and it going, you know, from a mom and pop fun, you know, mm. little entrepreneurial venture to now, you know, this, you know, me- mega corporation, I started to feel like I just work in retail and I just work, you know, in a mall in the US and mm. um, it wasn't kind of fulfilling, you know, that that novelty had worn off a little bit. 
So I had no idea what I was going to do. And it was right, you know, timed with that, like the financial crash and everything, you know, changing. Came back to Vancouver and, you know, was looking at jobs all across the board and came across a job about working with a child with autism and in this, you know, thing called ABA therapy. And I, you know, watched a YouTube video on it. I was like, that looks cool. And I always loved the idea of working with children. I actually thought, you know, I'd love to be a pediatrician, but I never kind of took the right courses to get into med school. And so I loved, yeah, the idea of working with kids. I went and interviewed, I was under uh, Sarah White and Courtney Phillips for my first job. And uh, yeah, I just, I loved it. And so I got hired with this one family. It was only about 10 hours a week, but I went home that night and into uh, Craigslist at the time is where we were finding jobs. Uh, yes. type like autism or ABA and literally like 90 jobs came up um, within wow. the last two weeks that were posted like everyone was looking for BIs and I was like wow there's so much need in this mm-hmm. field so I started to work under any consultant that I could so I was working about 40 or 50 hours a week doing ABA under about four or five different consultants and I could see right away that there were you know everyone was doing things slightly different there were things I really mm. liked that some were doing there were things you know, I wouldn't do in my own practice that others were doing. And so I really wanted to have a bit more say with designing the programming and curriculum and um, sports was always a huge passion of mine. And I saw definitely Hmm. a lack of, you know, teaching kids sports and teaching using sports and using movement kind of in the programming. And so that was something that I wanted to kind of do more of. So I started my master's virtually through Florida um, Institute of Technology um, loved that program. And then, uh, as I was kind of doing my master's full-time and, you know, working with kids full-time and a bit on the verge of, of burnout, I saw a position come up in the South of France to go work with a boy with autism and live on their vineyard in Provence for a year and get supervision. And so, um, it was like 25 hours a week. And so I could continue my BCBA supervision and, you know, have a change of scene. So I moved to the South of France for a year and continued my coursework, continued that. And then wasn't ready to come home, ready for a change. So from France, I moved to Egypt and lived in uh, Cairo, Egypt for a year. Also Hmm. getting amazing supervision um, from a BCBA out of Bahrain and one in New York. And um, yeah, had an incredible interesting experience in Egypt. It was great after the revolution, but working with kids with autism there. Um, And then I, you know, was just about finished my master's, came home, ended up at uh, Monarch House, which was one of, you know, the largest autism clinics in Canada, one of the bigger ones in North America. And so after having both business experience with Lulu and now clinical experience, I kind of was promoted into like a clinical supervisor manager position pretty quickly there. So kind of oversaw that clinic for about four years and then uh, left maybe just over four years ago to pursue private practice again. And yeah, during that time, about six years ago now, I started my PhD and I started that um, remotely out of Belfast of Queen's University there. Um, And so, as you mentioned, I worked with kind of infants and toddlers showing signs of autism and how to intervene at the first signs um, through parent-mediated intervention. And then, yeah, throughout, you know, last, since being back from Egypt, like I've, you know, I always had passions to travel. And so I've been lucky to kind of combine research and traveling. And I've been fortunate enough to present 
research in Sweden and Italy and France, Germany, the UK, Japan. And then I was invited um, as a keynote last year in Greece for their um, national conference right before the pandemic. So cool. I love to travel. I love research and love working with the little, little, littles. Yeah. So that's wow. a lot about me. <laughs> So that's super cool. So you've been, you've been everywhere. Yeah. So South of France, were you, were you supervised by someone from France or was that a... Actually, um, locally, Sharon Baxter, who yep. was one of my supervisors before leaving for France. Um, because yep. in France at the time, I think there was only one BCBA. Yeah. And because this would have been 2010 or 2011. Yeah. And so Sharon and I, we developed a Skype model for supervision. And... Uh, huh. Yeah, so we're fairly early on the the telehealth and working through that. And uh, um, this family in France, they were also working with a clinic in New York. So every kind of four or five months, we would travel to New York and work out of a clinic there and receive more training. And it just happened one time, Sharon happened to be in New York while we were in New York. So she got to actually meet kind of the family and the boy in person too, so... But yeah, so no, it was mostly through telehealth um, and then a New York clinic for SLP, OT. And then they were doing a ton of also alternative treatments out of there as well. That's really neat. And then Egypt, like that's amazing. So what made you, what made you choose Belfast? I mean, there's lots of programs in Canada. Yeah. So I actually, it happened, I was at um, the conference in Stockholm, Sweden, um, and this would have been maybe 2014. And uh, it was just walking around during the poster session and my two future supervisors who I didn't know at the time, Dr. Carola Dillenberger and uh, mm. Dr. Katerina Dunavi, they were there promoting their master's program, mm. you know, wrapped up my master's. And I said, what about a PhD? And they said they just took on their very first remote PhD student, but they would be open to another one. And so I think it was their second ever. Now it's, a, you know, a full on most people are doing their PhDs kind of virtually. Mm. Anyway, so it just, um, it happened to, it turned into a great conversation. We had very similar research interests. So it was right after that Sally Rogers had just put out a paper um, on her pilot project, Infant Start. Um, and both mm. Carola and I were super fascinated with the idea of working with infants and working with parent coaching. Um, yeah, it just, there was just something so um like some synchronicity with, you know, meeting with Mm -hmm. them and having research interests and then being able to do it remotely while working, but doing my research out of Vancouver. So yeah, it just kind of happened that way. Fantastic. So, so maybe we could touch on this whole pediatric thing. So what is, what, what, what do you mean by pediatric behavior analysis? What's the difference between that and just sort of what everyone else is dealing with kids? Yeah, what we're doing is we're starting very, very early and at the first signs of ASD. And so when you're looking at research that's been around at least a decade now, which more solid, but they've been looking at early signs and how early they arise, you know, the last 20, 30 years, they're seeing a lot of signs start to emerge around six months of age. And Mm. by nine to 12 months, a lot more reliable symptoms. By 18 months, it can actually be fairly reliably diagnosed. Yet, the age of diagnosis still remains between four or five in Canada, you know, four or five in the U.S. Um, and older across different countries. And so there's such a gap between when we're seeing the symptoms and be- when the child's getting intervention. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that has to do with just bottlenecks to diagnosis. It's not that we don't mm. see the symptoms there. 
It's just, it's going to then take, you know, a while to get referred. It's going to be a wait list to get, um, to get that diagnosis. And then there's going to be a delay getting a team start up. And so that's usually what will happen between the ages of two and four. And so what we're doing is by looking at as soon as there are concerns, there's no need to, you know, wait for a confirmed diagnosis. So as behavior analysts, mm. we're trained to address the symptoms, not the diagnosis, right? So mm-hmm. we're looking at the behaviors. We're looking at what are they currently doing? What should they be doing? What's the gap in between? And then how are we going to teach there? Regardless of, you know, what the diagnosis is and I'm waiting for, you know, a confirmed diagnosis. And so pediatrics just something of just kind of highlighting that super early approach in that we're not waiting, you know, pediatric would still, you know, fall three, four, five, but just to to highlight that it's even earlier that we're starting with. Mm, Okay. So um, there's one piece there around sort of the the four or five thing. And Mm -hmm. so that's just a a wait list thing. That's just folks not being able to access a diagnosis. So they're just not getting services. Is that pretty much what that is? That's a big part. So there's actually a lot that goes into what's happening between, you know, parents having concerns at 12 months and bringing their child in there. So the first bottleneck that's happening is a lot of pediatricians aren't trained first on what the earliest signs are, Mm. uh, as well as that there's anything that can be done, you know, pre-diagnosis. So what happens so often is the first information that the parent gets is that children develop at their own rate, like just wait and see, why don't you come back at 18 months or at two years, and then we'll check again. And so now they're waiting, you know, six months or a year with given kind of no tools in between, right? So it's just like, wait and see how they develop. Mm. um, If, you know, if they're going to continue along that trajectory. What's happening in the brain at that time? Um, So from zero to two, it's literally the most transformative time in your brain and all, you know, from birth to the end of your life. Those first two years, Mm. your brain's developing more rapidly than any other time. So your brain's actually making about 700 neural connections a second during that time. And so that time, it's really like creating all the road work, what we call like neural circuitry in your brain. Mm. And so before, you know, habits get too ingrained and before behaviors get too ingrained, they're really just emerging then. And so if you're working with, um, you start to see signs or seeing red flags of something and they're not addressed during that time, really the circuitry is just going to be be building stronger around those red flags and making them more difficult Mm. to undo later compared to as soon as you see them starting to kind of rework that that neural circuitry to kind of maximize more so they're um, they're more prepared for um, learning in a different way and interacting with their environment and participating in their environment because that's where all the neural... um, connections are made it's made through that active participation in your environment so exploring all the toys um so if you're really fixated on one toy um, and that's where kind of the majority of your time spent you're missing out on building connections in all those like playing with all those other toys or you're missing out on building those Mm. connections interacting with people and so those are those connections that we really want to make early on by the brains um really forming So I think of it like if you were a city planner, you had the option of coming into a major city after all the major highways are laid and all the road work and all the buildings are there Mm -hmm. and then trying Mm -hmm. to plan and rework some roads 
or to go in just as, you know, all the building materials are arriving and getting to be part of the planning right from kind of the ground up, right? And so the more circuitry that's made, it's just going to require, you know, more resources and more time to make any changes there. Wow, huge difference. And so, uh, you know, and I and I really need to get caught up on my, you know, developmental psych stuff. But what I remember from old days of first year psych was this idea of this kind of critical period of kind of zero to seven. Mm-hmm. You know, you got to learn everything by seven and then come seven, your skull hardens and your brain uh, doesn't want to develop anymore or something to that effect. That was sort of the message that was given. And then, and so that's sort of why early intervention focuses on kind of, you know, the, the two to six age, because that's the time, you know, when all this is going to happen. But what you're saying is really that critical point is zero to yeah. two. Um, so New England Center did a great study that emphasizes this. It was by McDonald's mm. and colleagues, I believe, 2014. Um, and so they looked at, what are the differences between the onset of intervention months-wise? Like how much does a month actually matter? Mm-hmm. And so during my talks, I always talk about every month matters at that time. And what they found is of kids that started intervention before two years of age, in the first year of treatment, 90% of that group made what was considered to be significant gains. Mm. So meaning that their brains were so moldable, they were so they acquired information and knowledge so quickly between two and two and a half, that already dropped to 70%. So only 70% of the cohort made significant gains. Between two and a half and three, it dropped to 30%. Oh my gosh. Um, and so then only, and so they had a high bar of what was considered significant gains. So even, you know, after two and a half, there was still lots of progress to be made. But there is such a drastic difference between starting after three and starting before two. Yeah. Um, And I see that with the work I do. So when I would do work with parents, I meet with them weekly and I give them a task to do each week. Like we kind of work through different, different goals and sequential targets and what they're able to accomplish in one week with a child, you know, that's say, you know, 14 months old Mm -hmm. might take, you know, two months in early intervention when that child's, you know, four or five. And so you just see how, you know, how quickly you're able to kind of help with those acquisition, those early acquisition skills when you're getting in that early. Crazy. It makes you think of sort of these. So again, I don't work in early intervention, so I'm just sort of speaking <laughs> from as a spectator, but it makes you th- think of these, uh, these early learners, I guess, as they call them, these folks that, you know, don't have language and, you know, have a lot mm-hmm. more, uh, you know, lack, lack a lot more of the functional skills and whatnot. And, you know, you'll see them. I did a a, a year stint before I kind of got into my master's in a, in a early intervention center because the professor told me you right. have to work <laughs> in early intervention if you if you want if you want to be in a BCBA. And I said, all right, I'll do it for a year, and that's yeah. what I did it for. But um, um, and I was back to adults. But I would watch sort of these early learners, as they mm. called them you know, really not get a whole lot out of it, and and, and I actually would see them later as. Uh, as a consultant serving serving adolescents, I'd see them later as adolescents, mm-hmm. um, and they were they were the same um, essentially. And so, it's it sounds like if if maybe some of these folks got in in the zero to two range, they could have had a lot more gains. I think so. I'm always I definitely agree with that, but I always want to come from 
you know, a place of hope for parents and that we don't want, you know, you don't want yes. someone that started intervention at four to carry around this guilt of like, what have life been like? Mm. So when I see like kind of the, the early learners that you're speaking about so much too, what I look at is what type of programming were they given during mm-hmm. those, those years? And I always recommend everyone that works in early intervention to work with adults and work with teens at some point so they can see the big picture and really see like, okay, given the opportunity, you know, with this adult or with this teen, what would I have taught them at three, four and five that was missing from their program? And so I think, you know, our our field's constantly hopefully doing better. But when I Mm -hmm. look at what was very common before is seeing, you know, eight-year-olds and nine-year-olds still working on VB map goals of matching flashcards and, you know, inset puzzles or things that will have no relevance to their quality of life. And so I really look at, you know, looking at functional programming and how did, did we miss the boat on that because we were, you know, just following curriculum. So I think it's both. I think, you know, definitely the earlier, the better. And that's always my message that's what really aligns with the research but then also very strategic and efficient programming and like let's not waste time teaching skills that aren't improving anyone's quality of life if you're planning on collecting continuing education credits for this episode you'll need to go to www.cbiconsultants.com and enter the three secret words the first secret word is Lemon. Okay, so the other sort of barrier that I'm seeing here is so, at least, and I don't know, I'm sure it's different in different countries and certainly even different provinces, but in our province, we have this kind of funding model that uh, gives folks, you know, a, a bunch of money. Uh, you know, from diagnosis until they turn six, it's, you know, it's $22,000 or something like that a year, um, which, you know, is sort of based on some of the studies around, you know, some of these sort of low vast kind of base studies and what those require and so on and so forth. But folks aren't going to get that official diagnosis till four, potentially. Some might get it earlier, I guess, if they go private. Um, and pay for that out of pocket. And for like, sort, of, sort of two parts to this question. One, were you saying that it is actually possible if if they got in early enough to get an official diagnosis at 18 months now? Is that is that the case? Uh, yeah. Um, in BC, that's definitely, yeah, they're diagnosing as early as 18 months. And the diagnosis at 18 months, when they go to re-diagnose, you know, at two, two and a half, three, they are stable, right? So they're finding... Um, they are reliable mm. by that age. Earlier than that, they don't have the same stability. So if we were trying to diagnose at 12 months right. and then we go to check, you know, at two years, um, you know, there's less less stability with that diagnosis, you know. Gotcha. But by eight, maybe, maybe only half. Yeah, yeah, by 18 months, we're pretty sure. If the signs are there then, then they're going to be pervasive enough and persistent to maintain throughout. Sure. So say say you're you're a family that's lucky enough to get a diagnosis that early, then great. You're going to, you're definitely going to see, well, first off, you're going to see that money for longer, maybe yeah. a couple more years than other folks. Cause there's no retroactive money coming your way. 
but the but the the and then they're actually in the zero to two range, so they're actually maybe potentially actually getting a bit more, mm-hmm. you know, gr- growth there. But for all these folks that, you know, yeah, waiting or that are yeah. waiting or that are or that are younger than eighteen months, and um, the signs are pointing there, they're not getting any funding for services. So it seems odd that seem. I mean, I mean, I guess this is where. The courts have to come in, but so the best time to intervene is zero to two, but we can't because we can't give them an official diagnosis. We can't give them any money, and it just seems like a yeah a, a bit of a, a bit of a paradox. Ooh, so I've got lots lots to say on this. <laughs> so so much of our medical system is retroactive and not preventative to begin mm. with, and that's and we know if we invented in so many different things preventatively, we would save so much money retroactively but that's just you know the nature of the beast and you know whoever makes government policy is usually so removed from frontline research right and there's such a disconnect of what is best practice compared to you know what can the government actually do Mm -hmm. but another thing that's really important to keep in mind is so much of the early intervention research was done with children three and up so what we consider best practice of you know, using a BI and, you know, having the intensive, whether that's 15 or 20 hours, I don't really agree with anything, you know, more than 20 hours. But, you know, I tried to stay, you know, much lower than that. But even that, the research around that is done with three and up. And when we're looking at kids Mm. that are one, you know, 18 months, what's really starting to happen now is we have to discover what is actually best practice for that age group, because what's best practice for three is not what's best practice for 18 months. And so for a one-year-old, it's not natural or normal or best practice for them to be spending 20 hours a week with a therapist, right? The learning comes Mm. throughout all their daily routines at home. So it comes through diaper changes. It comes through mealtime. It comes through bath time. It comes through getting ready for bed. And so the best people to be um, doing the intervention is parents um, Mm. because they're with them through all these learning opportunities all day long. And they're also ones that they're going to be really easily shaped by their child's behavior, regardless of, you know, whatever their child's doing. So we respond to kids so quickly. So I always think when, you know, if you were holding a six month old baby and you go to make a funny face and the baby laughs, you're going to do that face again. Mm -hmm. If you do the funny face and the baby looks scared and starts to cry, you're not going to do that face again, right? So in one second, the baby's changed what you're going to do. And so from a parent's point of view, say every time you bring out a book, your child either tries to rip the pages or throws it or runs away. Over time, you're going to stop bringing out books. If every time you sing, there's no response, like it's if nothing's even happening, the parent's not getting that reinforcement and that shared interest. And so they're going to sing less. They're getting less eye contact. And so what happens with months and months of this is the parent's behavior starts to shape in the way that they're going to be vocalizing less. They're going to be giving less eye contact. They're going to be presenting mm. less learning opportunities because they haven't been reinforced. So it's definitely unconscious and it's happening, you know, small incremental each day. And so this just creates kind of this negative transactional cycle, right? The child's developing atypically. And so the parent starts to respond atypically. Mm -hmm. So the best place to begin undoing this is working with the parent and parent-mediated intervention. And so how that fits into funding is with just doing an hour a week with the parent and giving them one focus for the week, 
And when we can break it down first, where I use behavior skills training. So we're going to first give the instruction and the, the rationale on why we're teaching this. Then I'm going to model it. The parent's going to practice it and rehearse it. We're going to give feedback. We're going to set up a goal for the week. Now, the parent has the opportunity to practice that goal in so many different ways. So they can practice it at bath time and um, meal time. And so the, the skill mm. becomes generalized. But so with one hour a week, we're able to have a lot more impact because the parent's essentially doing it, you know, five, 10 hours a day as during the child's waking hours. So it's a much more affordable for the parents that are paying out of pocket. Like it is out of pocket because there isn't anything to cover it, but it's an hour of our time per week versus, you know, trying to pay 20 hours of therapy. Out of mm, right. So that definitely helps. Um, but one of the things that I also want to do is, and hopefully by the time this podcast is live is have a lot of these lessons on video so that both parents and practitioners have something to go to of like, what do we teach? How do we teach and at least have some resources available that way so that if, you know, if there isn't a BCBA nearby that does have, you know, very early uh, intervention training, um, or if you don't have, you know, the finances, at least there's kind of something um, and some resources rather than nothing. Okay, cool. So essentially they don't need $22,000 a year. Yeah, no. When they're at that age and maybe we might even... If we could start to show, you know, the value of this, yeah, you know, maybe there could be a little bit of funding because it's not that much. Absolutely. And when you look at like what a lifetime of services costs, both in lost mm -hmm. wages and in, you know, intensive services, say for an early learner, it's about $1.5 to $2 million per person over a lifespan. And so if, you know, a 12-week course of this, type of intervention, it would cost, you know, about $1,800. And mm -hmm. ultimately, regardless, it's going to lighten um, future services later, it's going to do that different degrees by, you know, each person, but it will have an impact of, of lightening um, that. And so when you look at, yeah, the cost benefit analysis of just being able to provide, you know, preventative services, even just for, you know, any child that's um, showing different red flags and their screeners have gotten quite good now that they know that once there's a certain amount of red flags um, and I can talk about different screeners later of like what's out there and what's reliable mm -hmm. no you know by nine months and 12 months when there's a certain amount of red flags there the likelihood that that's going to result in an ASD diagnosis by 18 months or two years is is quite high mm -hmm. and so when we have those you know, the screener is showing, you know, high concern, you know, intervening with those children, I think overall, there's going to be such a cost benefit analysis because they're going to need less services later. It's not about, you know, not getting the diagnosis at all. It's just about kind of how do we maximize their trajectory and maximize, you know, their um, ability to, to learn and acquire skills as their peers do. And so, and, and and I definitely want to talk about those screeners. But if 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 those folks have been now screened and kind of looks pretty good at you know nine or twelve months, does that give them enough sort of information or ammo or whatever to start on the road to a diagnosis? So that come six months from now, maybe they could get one at eighteen months, and and maybe the wait list shortens for them, or are they still not going to get a diagnosis until they're four? 
because of what's happening sort of on average? It depends totally where they are and probably the the doctor that they see. So I find, Mm. you know, we're very lucky in BC for, like I always tell parents, if you have concerns, go to a pediatrician that actually diagnoses autism because they're going to be the best one to tell you, yes, there's enough symptoms here or no, there's not. So if your pediatrician... Mm. You know, if, if if their practice doesn't entail the diagnostic point, they're not in a great position to tell you whether there's signs or not. And because what we've seen time and time and time again is parents having concerns and it being dismissed by their pediatrician. And so getting to a developmental pediatrician that really does, that is actively involved with diagnosing, whether that's through Sunny Hill here or any of the private um, mm. diagnosis, they're in the best place to tell you yeah, if there are concerns. And then something else to keep in mind as well is that if the symptoms are there kind of by 12, usually when parents are seeing them at 12 months, chances are they're more severe symptoms um, and they're kind of on a more severe trajectory rather than if their symptoms are a bit lighter, right? And so are more mild. Mm -hmm. So that's all the more reason to, you know, get help sooner. Um, so they know this. Pediatricians know the importance of using these screeners. So there's a, a really popular one called the MCHAT. And so the CDC out of the U.S. knew that these screeners are, you know, essential for getting kids diagnosed early and starting intervention early. And so they mandated mm-hmm. that in the U.S. they need to use these screeners at every child well visit at 18 months, 20 months, and 24 months. And so they put those in and but what they actually found was that of 75% of the ones that positively screened like showing that there are red flags they failed to identify them and the reason why was that doctors were now giving these um screeners but they either weren't scoring them or the score would come back in uh, in the concern range and then the doctor would use their clinical judgment and say it says concern but you know, I wouldn't worry about it. Let's just, you know, come back in six months. And so, Mm. you know, screeners are only as all diagnostic tools, as good as, you know, actually scoring them and, you know, following the protocols. And so if we're using clinical judgment to, you know, kind of reduce the screener, then that's not helping either. And so that's kind of what, what continues to, to happen. And so I'm sure many clinicians listening to this will have heard that from many families about how early they did have feel something was up and how many times they were dismissed before someone actually believed them and got them kind of on the right track. Mm. So I guess then it's, it's going to be partly on the families to kind of advocate post screening. Absolutely. Yeah. Because, because no one else is going to, yeah. Yeah. The screener definitely. So there's a few screeners that you can do online. So the MCHAT is one, and then there's the infant toddler checklist is one, and the SORF is one. And so parents can do these online. Uh, and so you can print off your results. It scores it online. And so taking that yes to mm. your, your doctor's visit can definitely help support. Because in a doctor's visit, right, like they're going to have probably like 15 minutes with the doctor, right? And so it's such a small snapshot of what's really happening, but, you know, parents are with their child 24 hours a day and, you know, see a lot more than what, what a doctor can see. So that Mm -hmm. will definitely help. But, you know, if you have concerns, you're definitely the expert on your child. And so 
yeah, if you feel that you're dismissed, you know, get a second and third opinion. And you'll, I've heard from a few moms, it took, you know, four doctors before they got the right one that did refer them for a diagnosis. And sure enough, you know, they got the diagnosis, but you know, that's a lot of time in between and effort. And mm-hmm. a lot of people probably, you know, they have concerns and they go to the doctor and the doctor says, don't worry. And that's really what you want to hear, right? You want to think that you're mm-hmm. acting and you want to think yeah. that, okay, I'm just, you know, a bit of a hypochondriac. It's my first child or, or whatever. I just got to relax. And so a lot of people probably don't go after, you know, one or, you know, go for a second opinion because, it's, you know, it's news that they want to hear as well. So that's interesting. So you, you don't have to get those screeners from the doctor. They can just kind of go online and yeah, yeah. And, and do them themselves. And what's what's the SORF? What's that stand for? Do you know? SORF. Um, Screening probably. <laughs> exactly. Maybe. So it's by Amy Weatherby, um, who's a okay, phenomenal yeah. researcher. And she's got this website called the Autism Navigator. Okay. So she created this tool. She created the infant toddler checklist. Mm. And she has all these other amazing resources. So she's created like 16 by 16. So 16 gestures by 16 months. So what should, mm. so from nine months to 16 months, your child should be um, acquiring at least two new gestures every month. And she's got what those gestures are. She has, what are 16 early signs of autism by 16 months? So her, yeah, so it's just autismnavigator.actuallearnercommunity.com. I'll figure out what the SORF um, Oh, that's okay. We can, I can find that for. later. Um, but um, And so would you suggest to folks that it's maybe a good idea to do all three of those and bring those to your doctor? Or do you just need to do one? Or are they different? Yeah, they all kind of have been tested on different ranges. Um, so the SORF is systematic observation of red flags. Of ah, it. okay. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And so the infant toddler checklist and the SORF are both developed for earlier, where the MCHET's actually just been tested on 16 months and older. Um, mm. Although it has been kind of verified in a few studies of using it 12 months and 13 months. I still think there's a lot on there at 12 months that, that if there are concerns, because the flags that are on there usually are intact much earlier, mm. kind of about four or five, mm. six months, kind of, you know, does your child attend to their name? You know, if you point at something, does your child follow your point? Does your child point at an item? So a lot of those things develop, you know, 10 months, 11 months. So the, the MCHAT can still be good for those, even though it mm. has actually only been verified 16 months and older. Um, but the SORF and the infant toddler checklist both, I think, even as early as nine months, nine to 24 months. Um, So it's a good place to start. And then I've also done training on the AOC, which is the autism uh, observation infant scale. And so that's from six months to 18 months, I want to say. But that is a clinician-led assessment. So it's similar to um, the ADOS, where it's kind of structured. Um, and led by the clinician, but um, it has been, yeah, tested as early as six months, more reliable between nine and, and 12 months. And is it only going to be those pediatricians that diagnose autism that would also do these screeners? Um, likely, yeah. But the, there's definitely lots of resources online of the checklist ones. So the, both the SORF and infant toddler checklist, you can do with right. it. Um, it's just a kind of a forced choice or Likert scale of how much right. your child's doing it. And it, it scores it 
um, and then tells you, puts it into either no concern, some concern, or like high risk. Mm. I guess the better question is, is would, would those pediatricians that don't diagnose autism, you know, see any value in those if you brought them in, you know? I would hope so, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. but hard to, hard to say, and it would, might vary as well. The second secret word is infant. And, and, and how to sort of, and maybe these may be sort of philosophical rhetoric questions, but how do you kind of go about educating pediatricians, mm-hmm. you know? To, well, one thing is to, they might, they might kind of believe your concerns, but if say your child's 12 months and they know 18 months will be the earliest that they get diagnosed, a lot of them don't know that there's anything to do right now between the 12 and 18 months. As, mm. uh, as a lot don't realize the time sensitivity of intervention, right? We have this general thing before three is great. It's early intervention. But because, you know, research is done in such silos that, you know, and pediatricians have to be experts on or have such a broad range of what they, of their knowledge um, that they might not know, you know, like that New England study that I mentioned, the difference between starting intervention before two and starting after three, how it goes from, you know, 90% um, to 30% of significant outcomes, right? And, mm. um, and so they might not realize the time sensitivity or what to recommend, right? So they that could be one of the barriers of just like, yeah, I see your concerns. You know, the best I can say is come back in six months. And then if they're still there, we can you know make a referral a lot will still like want to see them again at two before, you know, making the referral. And so, you know, that even postpones it longer. Oftentimes too, the first referral that they'll make is for a hearing test. And then, you know, if speech still hasn't developed then they'll refer for SLP services, then it's often the SLP that's letting the parents know that they should be pursuing kind of a diagnosis in an ASD or that they see red flags there. Wow. Okay. So, Obviously, you know, if you're going for, uh, you know, an, uh, one of these screeners, then you've got some idea in your head that you need a screener mm-hmm. um, and that you need to find a pediatrician that's interested in autism and whatnot. But how as a parent do you even know to do that? Yeah. But are those early signs or the... Yeah. Yeah. So what parents report, there's different things that clinicians see first and and that are seen in the studies versus what parents most commonly report. So what parents most commonly report is the child doesn't respond to their name and doesn't respond Mm. to the voice as much. So that's usually one of the things that tips them off. Infrequent eye contact and infrequent looking at people as they'll they'll often see um, that. So hard to get your baby to look at you. Um, less affect, so more difficult to get your baby to laugh, especially like with you, like so that shared enjoyment. Uh, limited use of gestures, such as show and point. So there's mm. so much that develops in communication before expressive language. Mm. Um, so some parents, they're not tipped off until kind of 18 months and two where their child should have, you know, 10 words, 20 words, you know, by two when their child's not talking and they're like, okay, something's up. But there's actually so much language that comes between using gestures, responding to gestures, babbling, which babbling sounds should they be having, using um, to and fro babbling. So imitating 
um, you know, where the mom says Baba and then the baby says Baba and that back and forth of imitating babbling that way. And then using kind of directive babbling when you want. So they, you know, point to something and say, you know, ba 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 ba. So that's very, you know, a good precursor of communication is they're using very directive babbling, often paired with gestures. And so not seeing kind of those precursor communication, less imitation. So babies, it's early, even before six months, but at six months, you start to even see imitation uh, more readily develop. And so Hmm. that could be sticking your tongue out or smacking your your lips or just showing them something with an object. So picking up a maraca and shaking it and then putting it down and seeing the baby pick it up and shake it, um, Uh. you know, that would be showing imitation, right? And so imitation is often delayed. What clinicians find, um, so in clinical research, the earliest indicators that they're finding are actually motor skills. So there's a head leg study. So when you're when the baby's lying down on their back and you hold their hands and you pull them to sit. Um, so at six months, kind of if their head's really lagging back, that's kind of motor uh, milestone that they're they're not quite meeting. Um, mm-hmm. And then uh, there's a few other with kind of grasping and reaching when they're really looking at what are the earliest things. But those aren't the things that the parents are necessarily picking up on or the motor skills. It's just more what they see kind of in the clinic. But other things more interested in objects and people. So that's, you know, they're eight, nine, 10 months. And then there was a great study done by Ozenhoff in 218, I think, Sally Ozenhoff. But we used to think regression was fairly rare. So we thought of autism having three different phenotypes in that kind of regularly develop. And then at 12 months, like a plateau where the skills kind of stop regularly developed kind of 12 or 18 months and then show a regression Mm. and kind of fall back or having, you know, the symptoms not on a regular development pattern from about six months on. But what Sally's study saw is that we just aren't tracking regression correctly. And that regression was actually so much more common when we changed the way that we tracked it. So when we looked at regression before, what we normally did was ask parents, has your child lost any skills or have they regressed on anything? And so what they're doing there is they're actually then having to retroactively go back and assess. Mm. And then they're also having to do categorically kind of yes or no. And so when we're using retroactive and categorically, only about 29% of parents and not even many more clinicians would say that regression has occurred. When it was done in the present, what's the word I'm looking for there? Uh, So at each visit, so say every um, six weeks or three months where they measured how much is that child smiling? How much are they looking at adults? How much are they responding to gestures and some different social communication um, targets? And then they looked at three months from then. And then they looked at three months from then. And they rated it out of five from one to five. What they saw is that 88% of kids actually regressed in social communication skills, but because, you know, they only were able to see it when they compared the exact same target to something three months from there. And when they had more of a sliding, like a scale of one to five rather than yes and no. So by moving regression to in the present and um, using a dimensional scale rather than retroactive Mm -hmm. and categorically, they saw regression far more common and so what I imagine we're going to see very soon they're probably in development now is screeners that are looking a bit more at 
measuring those same skills at intervals like each month and then comparing the score to what was it last month, what was it two months ago to see if we're losing skills because regression is very um, tied with ASD that it doesn't happen in a lot of other, say, developmental disorders. Just, yeah, one of those other kind of early signs. The repetitives, like so any kind of the stimming or stereotypies, Oftentimes, they're not really reported till 18 months. Sometimes they're seen earlier, but those tend not to be um, one of the first things that that parents notice. And then temperament, so either hypo or hyper reactive um, to different things. So some parents will report their baby was so easy. They never got upset. You know, they could put them in the backseat of the car and drive for six hours and they didn't hear a peep. So that would be very um, hypo-responsive or hypo-reactive. And then the the mm. hyper-reactive of just, you know, the smallest change. And it could be sensory, you know, it could be they don't like the shirt or the the food or something, but having very, very big reactions up to sounds and sights or textures. Those are some of the, mm. the early cool. signs. But with early signs, and I, I always kind of mention this in the, the talk, is so much of the early signs they're what we call like the deficits of behavior. So when we think of all behavior, either comes in access or deficit. Like, is it something mm-hmm. additional we're seeing or is it something that we're just seeing less of? So many of the symptoms actually are just less of something. Um, and so they're so much harder to just see kind of with the naked eye day to day. Like if a child looks at objects, uh, like say a typical developing child looks at objects 40% of the time, and people uh, 60% of the time. And then a a neurodivergent child maybe only looks at people, you know, 40% of the time, it's going to be so difficult to see Mm -hmm. the difference between 60% and 40%. Um, And so that's where the screeners really help because it's really looking at like the cumulative aspect of all these symptoms together because just eye contact on its own or not responding to name on its own None of those are, you know, of concern. It's really when you're seeing this, a big enough cluster of the red flags that it starts to be of, of concern. And because the, the stereotypy, which would be considered those accesses of behavior, they're unlikely to be reported until kind of 14, 16 months. So those are the ones that are easier to see with the naked eye because they're something added that, you know, typical mm. development you wouldn't see. But so many of the other ones are just deficits and it's just that the child's doing it less, not that they're doing it not at all. So they're babbling less, they're looking less. Um, and so those can be difficult to see without a screener. So I mean, it sounds like, this is interesting. So it sounds like, which is good. So some of these measures are getting more sensitive and able to pick up more of this stuff. But as a new parent, like I don't have children either, so I, I don't have any kind of experience in this, but as a new parent, I don't know that I would think to even ask any of these questions. I mean, I, I think it might be more likely if I had a second child mm-hmm. and, and I'd be like, yeah, you know, J- Jerry, Jerry didn't mm-hmm. do any of this, but Billy's doing a lot of this. And so maybe I should go get it checked out. Yeah. Um, and so if you have a baby, you're you're probably going to the ped- pediatrician pretty regularly anyway, just as sort of mm-hmm. a, that's sort of a normal thing, I guess. Yes. yes? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, and so, and so you would, would you just presume that, is that sort of the job of pediatricians is to check these developmental milestones and whatnot anyway, regardless of whether they're knowledgeable in autism or not, just to kind of watch for head tilts and watch for all that kind of stuff? 
I feel like that's the assumption. And so mm. that's what we're hopes happening, but I don't know that it's always happening. And if they're looking for, right. they're looking for something different. And so for your first child, I'm sure it's so hard to see those subtle signs because when you're probably exhausted, you know, you don't have, you've got a sample of one of, you know, what, what you're looking at for development. So the parents that are usually on it, you know, at nine months, it's because the symptoms are more severe, like their child just won't look at them. And they feel it during nursing, mm. like during nursing, they, you know, people talk about how this is, you know, a bonding experience and their child just watches their eyes and they just feel, you know, their child's looking anywhere but their eyes. Um, a lot of times they feel that their child might be deaf or hear because they're not tuning to their voice um, or they're not, you know, recognizing any common, um, any common words. But so the symptoms usually have to be fairly, fairly severe, more pervasive at nine for, for I think, a first time parent to see. Um, mm. But yeah, when it's your second child, a lot of times, then it's a bit easier to just see like, you know, they're not smiling as much or they're not hitting those milestones that their first child did. So that that can be a bit easier. And that's why, you know, the government in the US has mandated these screeners. It's just it's sad mm. that they're not actually being used as they need to be. But hopefully just as everything becomes, you know, people become more aware of pre-diagnostic intervention and how how important kind of year one to year two is that, mm -hmm. you know, it, it might be more top of mind for pediatricians, but it's definitely something kind of in my action plan of just disseminating that information of to doctors. The CDC, I don't know really what's happening in Canada of how much they're on this, but um, if you go on to the CDC website and you look at mm -hmm. autism symptoms for infants, they actually have some great courses that doctors can take on there where they have all these videos of seeing what does it look like in six months and eight months. And so I was actually pretty impressed with, now I don't know how many people do that or how optional it is, or but the resource yeah, yeah. is there. And so, yeah. If folks are, you know, are, are lucky enough to get the right pediatrician or... Mm -hmm. Get, get the screening done and, you know, and we'll talk about this sort of after, but somehow they managed to find you um, and, and you're able to, you've kind of come up with a, a program of your own that was kind of a, kind of a, a result of the study, I, I guess, right? Mm -hmm. So let's maybe dive in a bit to your study and kind of, and kind of what that all looked like, who was in it and, yeah. and how you got to what you got to. The third secret word is Belfast. Absolutely. So one thing that I'm super passionate about is when researchers are publishing, I always believe like if you're reading a paper, you should be able to actually learn something from that and apply it to your practice, right? Like that we're, we're able to actually use that information. And during my PhD, what I kept finding is that anyone that was publishing on this topic there, what they were actually doing, their methods were actually, you know, very vague in the paper. And, you know, it was like a lot of intellectual property that they were protecting and you couldn't access it unless you went to their clinic and either started to work for them or, you know, underwent, you know, a few years of intensive training and certifications. Mm -hmm. And so it just wasn't accessible. And when we look at the time sensitivity of this, like if you've got a child um, that you're concerned of. It's like, you need information now. And 
with BCBA, like we, you know, we're lucky in BC, we do have a good amount of BCBAs, but then same thing, if they need information on working with a younger client, you know, the idea of signing up for a training that's happening six months from now, and then Mm -hmm. getting, you know, level one done, and then having to do, you know, a year of validation or whatever, and then, you know, finally being able to put into practice, it's, it's just not, it's not going to build capacity, and it's not helping the kids right now. And so, one of my main goals with my research was to be as transparent as possible and really be able to just put out there what it is that I'm doing. And it might not be the best thing, you know, compared to what, you know, Sally Rogers is doing or social ABCs, but at least it's something that people can follow and it gives some kind of framework. And so I came up with the Spark, which is a sequential parent curriculum. And so it's just 12 lessons on what kind of skills can we kind of teach natural Mm. environment and and so what I love doing is working with the parents because when you start at the beginning what you see is they're really trying but they're spinning their wheels a bit and you feel you can see just kind of the stress in their face and their shoulder they're they're really wanting to connect and wanting to play but they're just finding they're not getting anything not getting a ton back and so after a few sessions you just see you know their shoulders relax and then they're being able to connect with their child more and enjoy playing with them just by, you know, a few different things about Hmm. reframing. So we always start our first lesson. And I think this is similar to what Sally Rogers teaches. And it's also in the the early start Denver model, but finding the smile. So let's find five new ways to make your child laugh. Um, Because when your child's laughing, they're going to be more engaged and that's going to be the best time for them to be learning anything. So when we're happy, what happens is um, like dopamine floods into our brain but it actually like turns on all the learning centers in our brain. Um, and so it makes it the best time to, to actually be learning anything compared to, you know, if we're stressed or just not enjoying it. So what that mm-hmm. also teaches parents is really tuning into what, like their child's affect and where is your child having the most fun. And so it teaches parents how to do kind of preference assessments. Like, does this make you smile or does this make you smile? Um, ah. And really seeing like, what are the things that they enjoy? And then we go on from there about following your child's lead and your child's interests. So what I saw so often with parents is they're trying so hard, but their child might be, you know, very like focused on playing with a car and they're, you know, five feet away with like a new toy, like, whoa, look at this, look at this. And wanting their child to come to them rather than really looking at what's your child really interested in now, Mm -hmm. because that's where their attention is. And then how do I join their activity and make it more fun with me there than it was, you know, without me there. So when we see our child playing with something, oftentimes what happens is we we're like, okay, I'll go play with them there. But we end up actually creating so much more demand on their play that it's not fun to play with us. So we either, oh, let's take turns. And now I'm taking their toy from them or Mm -hmm. I'm changing the way they play and I'm disrupting the plan that they've had. And so they keep moving away from us or play isn't becoming reinforcing. It's becoming punishing Mm because we're changing it. And so teaching parents about like, how can I make their play more fun right now? And so a lot of that first starts with, let me go beside them and get a similar material and interact beside them with the same material Mm. um, so that Mm. we can start to, you know, I can show them new things to do with that without taking their item. And I can, so if they're, you know, say just rolling a car back and forth right in front of their eyes, um, you take a car too, but 
but now you can add some fun noises and maybe a block. So you push mm. your car into a block tower and the tower falls down. Then you set it up, you do it again, and you set it up and you see if your child wants to crash into it. And so now right, you've, right, you've cool. added on, you've made their play more fun with you there. Um, yep. And you're being kind of that happy um, or the playful helper. Sure. And so often it's those two things just, you know, they're just like a, such a small switch. Mm-hmm. And it makes all the difference with the child wanting to engage, right? And and really looking at, yeah, where your child's happiest and then building up that repertoire, right? So showing them more things that might make them happy um, and make, make them laugh. And then how do we kind of expand on that and work on it together without kind of interrupting theirs and taking theirs? So, yeah, that's kind of the starting. And so, sorry, that was a big tangent of <laughs> this curriculum, but... <laughs> So whatever, in the, the study that's published, I have a lot more detail in there of week to week. And so someone with training in verbal behavior and uh, behavior analysis would likely be able to use that as a framework. Uh, but I've also mm. created a manual that I will make available shortly on my website, maybe by the time that this is live. I just, I was part of, did it as part of my doctoral studies, but I just wanted mm-hmm. to maybe spruce it up a bit and add some Add some pictures, but that would provide even more information for um, a BCBA to follow and to troubleshoot. And even if a parent didn't have access to a BCBA, I've tried to write it completely in parent-friendly language and away from jargon nice. so that they can follow it. The BCBA would hopefully uh, put what kind of what theory and what, um, what we're working on behavior analytic terms, but I've written it all in um, parent-friendly language so that it's at least a tool that's available to everyone it's out there and that you don't have to you know undergo separate training and um mm. it gives you a starting point and there's lots of other things and i think amy weatherby she's doing very similar stuff on her website like so much of what she's put out is free is open access she's done really really great things so this this manual and, and these steps is this made for for a bcba to take and work with a family or is this just made for a family to take and start doing it on their own Ideally, it would be supervised by a BCBA because I feel they'll they'll get more they'll get more out of it. But I wanted to make it that, you know, for people in a country that maybe they don't have access to a BCBA or because there's no funding available for it, that mm-hmm. you know, if you if you didn't have the means to pay, you know, a BCBA there their hourly rate, that you would have a starting point and that it's you know it's going to just cover a lot of the things that I've put in examples of different ways that you can work on this target and troubleshooting. So if your child does this, what can you do? And if your child does this, what can you do? But it is recommended that if you have the option to work with a BCBA with it, that I think you'll get the most mm. out of it with both the parent and the BCBA working from the manual together. Then is this also going to be an open source thing or? Yeah. So my plan is to make the manual completely open source and then have um, a video for each lesson that would be a very low cost or maybe just a cost for professionals, Sure. whether it's, you know, 10 or $20 a week for those 12 so that it's yeah. available, but just, you know, covers any of the cost of hosting those videos or creating them, but having it, you know, just readily available so that people can get information quickly and not have to. Because there, there are definitely tons of clinics and people doing great research, but I found it was so frustrating when trying to learn what other people were doing. Because it would say, you know, this program mm-hmm. very effective, or you know, the child changed in these ways, or these targets were met. 
But then there was very little information given about, okay, what did you actually teach the child? How did you actually teach them? What order was it taught in? You know, who taught them? Was it a clinician? You know, and so I've laid it out both in the the manual as well as in the research about, you know, if you are working with a BCBA, for them to do it in a behavior skills training way. So I really believe first explaining to the parent, what are we teaching today and why is that important? Like, I think the why is so important, right? You need to know, you know, why do I need to do this? And then being able to model it with their child so that they can visually see what it would look like. And so one thing I always work with my my students on, my BIs, when they're always like so excited to be consultants, is that you never stop working with the kids. You want to be working modeling things you know for your team all the time so that you can jump in with any child and actually model what it should look like Um, because if you can't do it with their child you know it's not going to put a lot of kind of validity into what you're saying they're gonna whereas if you can really show like this is you know how you can do it and then you can help also troubleshoot when it doesn't go the way that's planned so then you'd model it then you'd get them what's so important is actually and as awkward as it is is saying okay now it's your turn Hmm. See how it goes because yes. we can make things look incredibly easy because we have, you know, decades of experience working with little kids and some things that we do, you know, so naturally, you know, we see their attention like weaning to something else or we're just, you know, sometimes a few steps ahead or it can just be split second differences. So we can make things look very, very easy. And so if a parent's only watching and then after you leave, then trying they can, you know, not necessarily have the same success. And so it's really important that rehearsal piece and then providing feedback like, yeah, that was great. You know, you can always, you can try it this way or this way. And and then with each thing that I teach, rather than just teaching kind of the grandiose theory behind it is let's teach it on five different play sets. Mm. So how would I, you know, if I'm playing with cars and now we've crashed the car into the tower you know, 20 times, How do I expand the activity of cars? So now I'm going to add a ramp. Maybe I'll add bubbles, Mm. but I want to show them just with that activity. Then I'm going to show them with another activity, how we're going to expand it. And then another activity rather than just try to say, yeah, and then just expand it. Because what I think we, we always take for granted is we've got so much knowledge in developmental milestones, in lots of different creative options of what you can do to change that activity We've got, you know, information that we're getting from the child on where their interest is now, what they're going to like. And we kind of put all that information in in a second, make a change to their play activity. And so that can be a lot for a parent to do or to expect the same. And so without them actually being taught in an activity, like five different ways to expand it, and then in a different activity, five different ways to expand it. And then I find just the way that we would teach, you know, our kids, we teach, you know, maybe three to five examples of things and then check for generalization right now you give parents a completely new activity and can they think of different ways to generalize it um, or to expand it Um, so it's a lot of modeling and walking the parent through each step and providing that feedback and really kind of working on that rapport with the parent so that you can give coaching and feedback and that it's you know that it's heard and applied um, because that's really where the the behavior change will happen so is, is the manual and the video enough for a BCBA or would you provide some kind of mentorship training as well? Or? Um, great question. Like I, one, I'm always learning. And so I feel 
you know, if they're seeking out mentorship from anyone, I would go to, you know, even people that have been doing this longer than me. So, but I don't know, you know, how available mm. they are, what certificates. Jessica Bryan mm-hmm. out of Bloor View Kids Hospital in Toronto. She's phenomenal. Um, Sally Rogers is phenomenal. Lonnie Zweigenbaum, Amy Weatherby. So those would be my first, like, if you've got any option to be mentored or do courses, um, they're very much the pioneers mm. of this. But I have, um, I'm currently working with um, a BCBA that they were already working with a child on the spectrum and then their young sibling, um, the parent has concerns with that 11 months. And so they're already more positioned well with the family. And so I'm kind of helping them go through providing some mentorship that way. So I always think, yes, mentorship and coaching, the more, the more, the better. But I've tried to design this mm-hmm. in a way to build capacity as best as possible in that you don't need me for it. You know, if you've worked with two-year-olds or two-and-a-half-year-olds, going to 18 months isn't that big of a jump. It's really just looking at getting a bit more familiar with what are the developmental milestones. And then um, what I find the biggest challenge working with any kids less than 12 months is you can be fairly limited by motor skills because they don't have the coordination Mm. or they don't have the release. And so under 12 months, you might need a bit more mentorship because you know, it's just, there's just a bit bigger of a gap between 12 months and 18 months. But if you work with children two and a half with this manual, 18 months or, you know, 13 to 18 months should be, should be okay. Cool. So do you, in your practice, do you just work with the youngins? So do you sort of discharge when they turn three or do you keep going? Um, no, I keep going. Um, sometimes parents won't really let you go and discharge. <laughs> not always an option. But no, most of them I've seen through to kindergarten, grade one. And then, you know, what I do find is when I do start with them at 12 and 18 months, by kindergarten, they actually aren't needing hardly any services. Um, the parents struggle to let you go, but it's it could be, you know, checkups every little bit or, you know, really moving them sure. to a junior model or some social skills groups or, you know, but it's um, the kids that have, that have gone through my program, I find by kindergarten, you know, they're not needing those intensive services. Um, But I do work with all early intervention and I have worked with one adult, you know, for about the last decade now. So I still have, you know, a 27 year old woman on my caseload as well, which is, I think always, yeah, just always important for big picture with early intervention is, Keep in mind, what are we teaching and why? And, you know, how does this help their life later? Yeah, yeah. So the, the reason I ask is is I'm wondering sort of what does your approach look like kind of after they're done sort of the the pre, the spark kind of thing? Like, because this just seems like it, it seems it seems like it's very, you know, child led. And it reminds me of um, and again, not an outsider looking in, but it reminds me of these sort of these NDBIs that folks Absolutely, are doing, yeah. um, you know, and so is that kind of that approach that you take sort of from two and up? Yeah, it, it, so exactly. So I would characterize it as an MB, NDBI. And so even when I start with a child, say that's two and has just been diagnosed, I recommend where actually I insist that we do like the parent training at the same time, as well as starting up their team, because I feel yep. these skills that we're training the parents, I've seen 
they just make such a difference when the parents are confident in these skills rather than just moving to, you know, a, a practitioner model rate from the beginning. Yeah. And then even up till two, um, I still recommend parents are kind of the primary um, ones leading. But once we hit two and they've got their funding and they've got their diagnosis, then I normally start to, depending on their needs, and we always make a model based based on what the child's needs are. Mm. Sometimes parents always ask, like, what's my model? And it's, you know, I always say it's going to depend on what I think your child needs the most. And so with kids that young, I always think quality over quantity right and so SLPs are so great with play for that age group Mm. and so a lot of times we'll first start to fade to like a clinician only model Um, so say four hours a week one hour per day and maybe that's two hours like twice a week with the BCBA like myself and then twice a week with an SLP Mm -hmm. Uh, because at two to an hour of intervention when it's done you know by a you know a master's level clinician it's going to be, mm-hmm. you know, very packed with learning opportunities rather than trying to yes. train, you know, a BI that's fresh out of high school and, you know, just learning things on how to, you know, keep a two-year-old's attention for two and a half hours, right? And it's not going to be fun or productive for anyone. So that's normally what I like to do till about two and a half and then gradually fade in the intensity depending on what they need, if we can just move, you know, half to preschool. Um, but it's very based on just where I think they're going to benefit the most. So I'm definitely going to a more traditional ABA program, whether that's 15 hours, you know, of intervention a month and or a week and doing that. But yeah, really looking at what the family needs and what the child needs. And do you use a specific framework though, like in, with the NDBIs or do you... Um, bounce around bounce around a bit like I feel with all with everything that's out there everything's got pros and cons to it so I find yeah the Denver model checklist is great for the really early learners so their level one I find fantastic because I find the VB map doesn't have those super early skills so I really like that yeah for a lot of things I pull a bit from the VB map as Mm. well for that age and then yeah, I've received training re- like a few years ago. I did the PEAK certification and I love um, mm. love the PEAK, but it's actually kind of too advanced for, you know, pre-kindergarten, I would say. Sure. Yeah. Um, so I always I always keep referring back and like, how can I use this? Because I love, absolutely love the kind of the theory and the, the way it's set up. But so, yeah, I would say largely Denver model, um, early start Denver model. And then mixed with VB map and mixed with just parent goals are the so the, the things that guide the programming the most. Right on. Well, for listeners, if you're interested in learning more about the uh, Early Star Denver model, uh, check out episode three with Maria Yay. Sample, and she kind of fills you in all on that, which is cool. Yeah, because it just seems like it would it would mold really nicely into that. And um, and I've been sort of. Uh, you know, on a bit of a tangent, I've been talking with, you know, kind of autistic mm-hmm. folk and ABA reformers, and they all tell me that the uh, the NDBIs are, are, the clo- are the closest thing to getting it right in their minds. So I think, uh, the, you know, I think this approach is probably going to be, yeah. you know, acceptable by a lot of groups, which is really mm-hmm. neat. Well, and I think it's a lot more developmentally appropriate at the, when we're working with such mm. littles, you know, when we're working with two-year-olds. I don't think we've got anything better than NDBIs right now to work yeah. from. 
But I always look at like, we got to be, you know, still taking data and looking at is the child learning, right? And definitely starting with least restrictive, but there's been kids that I've really tried to do more of an NDBI approach, but they actually, they do need a lot more mass trial and DTT and, you know, very focused on, you know, one skill and not learning it in, you know, a generalized natural setting to begin with. Mm. But, you know, I always try it there first, but if, you know, if it's not being acquired that way, you can keep going with what, what do you need to do for the child to learn? Dorothy Learman, she does some really interesting research on pre-assessment. So hmm. looking at how does each child learn best? Do they learn best in a natural environment? Do they learn best doing random rotation of the targets? Do they learn best doing mass trial of a target and then generalizing? And like when you look at, okay, what's the end goal is that they can do this in, you know, a naturalized setting with, you know, different people and um, different stimuli. And then you can do a few different targets in different ways and what's the quickest way to get them to that end goal and so doing all that doing those kind of pre-assessments before like just starting um, intervention with the child and just assuming that you're always going to put in three targets and you're always going to do this correction procedure because actually each child you know sometimes kids can learn better with five targets at a time um, mm. sometimes doing mm. one at a time and then putting them into a random rotation will actually get them to the end goal quicker and some kids learn great in a natural setting. And that's, you know, any kid that does, I would prefer that over table time anytime. But I think, yeah, you have to look at, is it working? And using the data to guide that. Cool. Before we kind of wrap up, I, there was one area I, I, I totally meant to ask about in the, maybe an hour <laughs> ago. And I, I don't know if I'll just edit, I try to edit it in or not, but, um, um, or we can just answer it here. I did a, interview and I don't know which one will come out first but with uh, Gabrielle Stigant she does a lot of work with girls with autism and uh, I was wondering sort of from from what she had told me you know it's even harder mm -hmm. to diagnose in, in girls autism and so does, does this sort of early screening stuff um, does it work with girls no, <laughs> For, for a, yeah. a better way to ask, no better way to ask Incredible a question. Incredible yeah. question. So I recently published a systematic literature review on what have been the earliest documented signs and screeners. And, and out of all the studies, I believe only one divided up by gender, maybe two studies. And so that was mm. one of my recommendations is that we're really looking at it as a whole rather than looking at what are the earliest signs for girls? What are the earliest signs for boys? The one that really did separate it, what they found is the signs were actually drastically different. Mm -hmm. So with eye contact, what was so interesting is girls that later went on to get a diagnosis of autism when they were between like six months and 18 months, they actually showed more eye contact than typically developing kids. Mm. And so Girls with autism, it, it is actually, there's um, a girl I follow on TikTok, Paige Lyle, like she talks about she gives more eye contact than, you know, than is say typical or just, you know, more than you'd expect with, with ASD. And so this one study of infants found that, you know, with girls, baby girls with, um, that will go on to get a diagnosis of autism, their eye contact was actually far greater than typical development, which I thought was wild, fascinating, but also it's such a gap in the literature, the screeners, everything is that we haven't divided this by 
the biological sex of how symptoms are dividing. And it, it was mm-hmm. super interesting why that hadn't happened and why it was just, they've divided kids into, you know, high risk, meaning they've got a sibling with autism already. And that's how they're, that's why they're tracking them versus, you know, low risk in mm. that they don't already have a symptom with it. And so, but they're not dividing it up by gender. So I would say, no, the screeners have not been developed with just females in mind and females are still likely to probably fall through the cracks mm-hmm. um, unless their symptoms are presenting the way that boys symptoms are presenting. But everything that we're starting to learn now about girls and autism is that the symptoms are are different. They're masked different. They're presented different. The onset's different. And so I think a lot of research needs to be done on the difference in red flags and onset, yeah, of of the different sexes because I mm-hmm. don't have it done. So it's so interesting. It'd be yeah, it'd be interesting to know like if uh, you know a, a nine months old or twelve months old passes mm-hmm. the screen because she she has all these characteristics that you would normally probably see in a boy with mm-hmm. autism. Down the road, would that person then? be more likely to identify as like non-binary or transgender too. And, and, and sort of those sorts of pieces too. Uh, you know, and, and just as far as, mm-hmm. you know, like, it, is it a biological thing or is it a gender thing? Is yeah. it, you know, like um, the girls that so I worked with in my study that, you know, were screened positively and, and did have the red flags, like the screeners definitely did work, you know, for them. Um, so they're definitely, yep. I would say are girls that are following, you know, that the typical trajectory, but I don't know how many we're missing that aren't following that trajectory. Right. And it seems, it seems like a lot based on how, how much later um, girls are getting diagnosed than boys. So I guess the, the one kind of final question about kind of your, your program is, okay, so I didn't, you know, my kid didn't screen say for, you know, didn't pass a screen, but I know there's a lot of autism in my family. You know, I know, I know, I know there's a lot of other sort of risk factors there. Would it hurt to follow the program anyway? No, not at all. Like, so that's what I think is amazing about it. And even just when you think about ABA in, in general, like it's really just, yeah. you're not looking at, is a diagnosis there or not? You're looking at yeah. what should they be doing that they're not doing? How can we teach that? And how do we fill in those gaps, Right. Um, and, and a lot of those skills, you know, at one are such behavioral cusp skills that when they mm-hmm. don't learn them, it's going to block them from developing the next set of skills and the next set of skills. And so, yeah, if your child's delayed for, for any reason, the following the manual won't hurt at all. It will just, it's almost just like extra tutoring, right. And yeah. making sure that they're, yeah. Well, I almost, I almost wonder even if they weren't delayed at all. Could it even be like a, I mean, there's nothing, there's no science behind this. So you yeah. can't really say this, but could it even be like, you know, preventative in some way? Like say they come into contact with some form of trauma later, maybe this would, you know, mitigate a developmental, you know, regression or something. I, who knows, you know? Okay. That's awesome. Um, so what's next for you? I, 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 by the way, I plan to not release this until you've got all your stuff up. Perfect. So, so when folks listen to this, It'll all be available on, uh, on on Amy's website, which will be on in the show notes. So uh, you won't have to look for that. Yeah. 
because uh, that's a good good indicator of when to release. So starting to decide when to put it out. So that that gives me a, a timeline. What's sort of next for you? Yes. Yeah, so, uh, beyond that. So on my website right now, under research, there is um, like an hour and a half note that I did do in Greece that kind of goes into all this research and stuff more hmm. in depth if people just you know want to learn more there. And then I'll have my manual just available on the site. And then hopefully the first few video lessons that are available for both clinicians and parents. So that if you do have concerns, one, how to even start to assess your concerns, you know, going over the screeners there and then breaking it down kind of week by week. So just um, weekly video lessons on there that they can, they can watch and learn and at least start to just disseminate some of this information. I don't know of really anyone else in the province working with kids this young. And so I feel I get often just word of mouth referrals. There's a few pediatricians that know that I do this work. And so when parents go to the pediatrician, those ones refer to me. And so it's a lot for me to take on. So I really need to build up some more mm-hmm. capacity, more clinicians um, mm-hmm. doing this and even just have resources for parents, for the kids that I can't see. One benefit though is because it's only you know an hour a week per child, it does allow you to see a lot more kids, but having having things um, more automated um, will only help that much more. And then they could always, you know, go through those 12 lessons on their own and then, you know, bring myself or another BCB on after that. Right. And then moving from there. So we'll reduce their cost and kind of get them ahead and get them information right away. You also do a little work like in a pediatrician clinic, don't you? Or you were? Or... Um, no. Didn't you say that? Didn't you say you were doing a work? Doing something with a pediatrician? Um, so I... Mm, well, maybe not. Maybe that was someone else. Okay, never mind. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I take it back. I take it back. Yeah, I was talking to someone who said they were working They were working part-time in a doctor's office. I thought I Michelle Schobach was at one point, but I don't know. If she oh, maybe it was Michelle. Yeah. yeah, maybe it was. Maybe that's who it was. You're right. Got my, got my T's uncrossed. <laughs> well, that's awesome. It's, a, it's really good stuff. And, and I hope folks listening to this will kind of get a hold of you and try to sort of, because it's going to be a lot of BCBAs, it'll be a CEU, and I hope folks will um, want to, uh, you know, expand their practice and and, and learn this piece. I think it would be really good. And uh, I imagine it's a lot of fun working with uh, the super little ones. It's so fun. I've got a six-month-old on my caseload right now, and it's so much fun. (laughs) And I could even see this transferring, you know, on some level, maybe over to like, the whole infant development folks, right? And yeah, I don't know if that's something you've... So they, um, I often work hand in hand. So a lot of times there are people that also refer me because their cases are a bit limited or their um, time. Right. So so I've they've um, given me quite a lot of referrals, but I know, gotcha. I think UBC was given a big grant to do some research about how to create a model where they're using infant development to kind of roll out some of this training. It was a bit older. Cool. I think it was two years and up. But um, it is definitely, you know, infrastructure that's in place that we can use a bit more. Well, thanks so much for being on the podcast with me. So, so such cool stuff and such, you know, uh, I, I love that it's such kind of pioneering work in the province. And, and uh, you know, hopefully we'll, we can really build capacity with a bunch of folks through this. So just really neat stuff. Thanks a lot. Awesome, Ben. Thanks for having me.